to another episode of Reverse Ambition, a podcast that features those who take a leap of faith to follow their dreams and passion. My name is Kelsey Cooper, aka the Social Broker, and I have a, an amazing guest today. Uh, today's guest, she is a former entrepreneur. She actually founded her own nonprofit and ran it for eight years, but now she's an investor. We specialize in developing, launching, and promoting new businesses domestically and internationally. Please welcome Miss, oh, actually, Dr. Angela Jackson. What's up, Angela? Hey, how are you doing? Thank you for being on here. I'm excited. Hey, I'm, I'm excited to be on here and congratulations on the podcast. I love listening to Reverse Ambition. Such important work. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm, I've been blessed to know so many dynamic people like yourself who follow their dreams and passion. And I just want to share you guys, you know, journey with the world. So let's get it started. Um, what I usually, my first question is usually take me through your journey in terms of where you're from, where you went to school, what you majored in, and how you got to where you are today. And I'll just, you know, interject in between ask follow-up question that sounds good it sounds perfect um so it's been quite the journey i just want to start out by saying that um i grew up outside of chicago about 45 minutes i was raised by my grandparents um both of them like blue collar my grandfather worked at a factory the local chrysler plant and my grandmother was a nurse's aide um, and they didn't have a chance to have, like, advanced education. So my grandfather grew up in the segregated South. He dropped out of school when he was in elementary school, and my grandmother only went through junior high. So education was always important um, to our family and for me. And so it was never a question of if I was going to college. It was when. Um, so I went on to go to undergrad at University of Missouri-Columbia, where I majored in journalism. At that time, I thought I wanted to be the next Oprah Winfrey. Wow. Um, I had planned to, you know, work in news and, and really tell stories about my community. And I got, after graduating, I got my first job at a TV station. I'll never forget, I was making $75 an hour for a 12-hour shift. And Kelsey, you've gotten to know me. Like, I am generally, like, a positive attitude, upbeat and every time I'd go into the uh, station, I would go in with my story idea, something around changing the world or something, a good Samaritan I had heard about. And I'd come in with like my happy story idea. And they would, they'd say something like, Angela, well, that's great. Someone just got hit by a car. Go out and cover wow. that. And that went on and on and on. And that's why there's this saying in the newsroom, if it bleeds, it leads. Like mm. really negativity in terms of the news. Um it, it really just drained me. And I just realized as a profession, it was not something that I was going to be able to do like long term, like mm-hmm. it stole all of my joy. And I was really at a crossroads because, you know, I graduated, you know, I got this job, and, you know, after journalism at this TV station, you know, my family was so proud to see me on TV, even though I was only making $75. A wow. Day. Like it seemed like a big deal. Um, but I wasn't happy. And so what I did was I decided I was just going to quit and that I needed to take some time to figure out myself. And I was in Chicago at that time. And a good friend of mine had just moved to Los Angeles. And I was telling her that I was at this crossroads and wasn't certain what I wanted to do. And she goes, well, I need a roommate. <laughs> and uh, she was like, you should move to California. If you're going to figure it out, you might as well figure it out somewhere warm. <laughs> so I, oh, wow. 
So I packed everything in my truck. You know, I had about $200 in my pocket. Without a job or anything? Without a job. And I drove to L.A. cross country with my little cousin, um, who was supposed to help me drive, but I didn't realize at the time she didn't have a driver's license. You know, (laughs) you know how to drive. I mean, so we drove across country. I drove the whole way, and I got there to L.A. with my roommate. And, you know, I started to figure out, like, what I wanted to do. I started temping and landed um, at Sony Pictures, really, um, and started as an assistant working Mm -hmm. with a woman who was the head of marketing at the time. And it wasn't that I thought that that would be my job, you know, again, assistant in a marketing department. Um, but I found there was something about marketing that just really resonated for me. Mm-hmm. And this woman, you know, I, I talk about her all the time, Annie Crows at Sony, um, because, you know, she believed in me. She took a liking to me. She began to invest in me. So while I was assistant, she would still invite me to meetings. And that's where I learned, you know, how, like how to run a meeting, you know, how to conduct yourself in a meeting. I learned about marketing. Oh, were you and around this time? I, yeah, I was 21. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so very, very early on. Mm-hmm. And I fell into marketing because marketing was very similar to journalism. It's about, you know, it's about people, really, right? So I always wanted to know people's stories mm-hmm. and what resonated with them. And with marketing, it was the same thing. Like, it's about people and what resonates with them. Why do they want to buy your product or why do they want to buy your service? Typically, there's a personal story behind that. Mm-hmm. And if you can get to that for a group of people who are your target audience, you could be successful. So I was at Sony um, for about three years um, and moved up kind of through the ranks and then end up jumping over to Universal Pictures, where I was a theatrical brand manager. So some of the theatrical brand manager what is that yeah so you basically do the marketing plans and strategies for their theatrical the pictures that you see Mm. and so some of the some of the pictures that i worked on were the grinch jurassic park uh the mummy and specifically i would also work with retailers to think about like how the movie and the brands would come to life in retail okay sounds important It was, well, it, was, it was important and, you know, it's entertainment, so it's not brain surgery, mm-hmm. but it felt like a, a lifetime away from where I grew up in Chicago, outside of Chicago. How right? was that L.A. So, life? Yeah, it was like, it, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was, for me, it was like, you, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you're meeting celebrities, you're involved with them. You know, a lot of it for me was a bit more difficult because I, I am a Midwesterner by heart and, mm-hmm. and very grounded. And I shared earlier about my grandparents. But uh, so for me, it was that job working in the at the pictures at the studios is what I did. It wasn't who I was. Mm-hmm. And I would see people get conflated by those things. Yeah, all you didn't of the get time. caught up in that Hollywood crap. They do, right? And it's and it's really it's more than that. So it's important to stay centered. And so I was in my early twenties there in LA and I have to tell you, I had a very difficult time because I'd make friends with people and you'd realize down the road that some of those friendships were based on what that, that person thought that you could do for them. Mm. You know. Because you get them access to the red carpet. If they were an actor or an actress, which you meet lots of people, could you introduce them to the uh, producer, for wow. example? That, um and for me yeah that it's it's hard that got that got old after a while you know you know how did you manage to kind of get any authentic friendship in LA or did you well, get any 
Yeah, I did. Actually, I met a group, and it was an unlikely group of friends. Um, they're a group of guys, um, and they're so diverse. You know, I'm African-American. Um, my BFF, who I end up meeting out there, Robin Dilly La Cruz, is Filipino, you know, is, identifies as gay. Mm-hmm. And uh, he introduced me to his friends and his world and, you know, just really bonded with him and bonded with them. And, you know, these are friendships I still have to this day, you know, I've been to their their weddings and we're all spread across the country now. Um, but they were the ones that, that grounded me. But mm-hmm. it, it was interesting. Little by little, each of these friends began to move outside of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I eventually had an opportunity and I was recruited by Viacom okay. to move to New York. Wow, were and you excited was, about that? I was beyond excited. I mean, when I think about, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I wanted to be on the coast. It was either L.A. or New York, and L.A. came first. But, like, New York, you know, watching, you know, Yo! MTV raps, uh, watching the videos, it was like there was all this heat around New York, and I just right. felt like this energy that I wanted to be there. And I had been there once before through my work at the studios, and, Immediately, I remember uh, landing in New York. I was like, I could live in this city. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Viacom recruited me, it was really a no-brainer. So I moved to New York a couple months before 9-11, really. It was wow. July and then 9-11. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting for me because I had only been in New York for a few months, but really saw the shift in the energy, you know, after 9-11. Oh, my God. I can imagine um, that. I mean, I heard it was a shift because I actually moved back to New York after 9-11. And I was like, it was like a ghost town in a lot of ways. People were like, I'm out. <laughs> people weren't going out. No, people weren't no. doing anything. No. I lived downtown Brooklyn at the time, which was a pretty amazing. Um, so you didn't really need to go into Manhattan to right. do things. But, you know, a lot of people just stayed in their neighborhood. They stayed close to their friends. You know, and I think, you know, looking back now, a lot of people are just in shock. Mm-hmm. Um, but but New York bounces back, right? Right. And, you know, I'm in, I'm in this city. I'm about 24 at the time. I'm working for Viacom. You know, I'm making more money um, than, you know, my family made. And, you know, I'm getting bonuses. I remember the first time I got a bonus when I was at uh, Viacom. It was like a $10,000 bonus. I swear I felt like I like won a $10,000 bonus. Nice. Yeah. But I mean, and that, you were still in you know, your twenties. I was still in my twenties, and um, but still, it was, for me, it was like, oh my god! Like I called my grandmother. I was like, you don't believe they like they told me I was getting a bonus, and it's like ten thousand. What did you like, do to understand. get such a bonus? What did you do for Viacom? What was well, the thing about so for Viacom? What I did was I did retail marketing for them. So very similar to what um, I did at the studios for the theatrical releases, mm-hmm. I would now do it for television shows. So thinking about like how do you bring those brands to life out into the world? Mm-hmm. So like grassroots marketing and retail and consumer products. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the way that Viacom works in a lot of corporations is that if you're at a certain level you get a bonus based on the performance of the company. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And at that time, the company was doing really, really well. You know, you had Nickelodeon at the top of its game, MTV at the top of its game. You know, Paramount was doing well. So um, that voted voted well for me. Um, So I was, yeah, I was was doing my thing in New York, you know, enjoying the life. Um, I was working for the Nickelodeon brand at that time and then was promoted to uh, director position over at MTV doing this, again, the same type of work, just mm-hmm. representing the MTV brand. And 
I was I was loving it. It was like it was the dream I had from when I was in college. One of my like career counselors said, "What's your ideal job?" I was like, "I want a job where I can go to you know work with jeans on and casual and it." And then she was like, "Well, where would that be?" I was like, "Like an MTV." And and finally, that you was know, some I random stuff back then, right? Now it you manifested yeah. it. Yeah, that's, I felt strongly that I did. And it's, it's a powerful, it was a powerful reminder to me about like setting your intentions mm. and really being specific about what you want. Mm. And also being clear about what you want because it could be for good or for bad. And so well, while I was working at MTV, you know, again, living this dream that I had, you know, I can kind of dress how I want to, you know, I'm involved with marketing, I'm in this city that I love. Um, there came a point though, with MTV where like I began to outgrow it. Some of the programming that they had on there just didn't resonate with me anymore. This is like the time when they had newlyweds. It was a ton of reality TV. And really I just began to think that I wanted more in my life. Mm -hmm. And I had this, although I traveled a lot in the United States, I'd never really um, had the experience to travel a ton abroad. And so I thought, what if I could find a job that would pay me to travel abroad. Like that was like the next goal that I set. And, and so I interviewed for a while for international jobs within MTV and Viacom, but nothing was coming through. And it was interesting. A recruiter called me around that time and told me about a position with Nokia, which is the old cell phone company. Um, they had a position that like 50% of the time would be international. Mm-hmm. And and I like left MTV to go to Nokia. And I, again, I remember telling my friends, the guy I was dating at the time, they were like, You're, why would you ever leave MTV? Right. Like, are you crazy to go to Nokia? Like that just seemed absurd. And um, you're, you're me, like downgrading. Yeah, I was down. That's exactly, that's the way they saw it. But for me, it was giving me access to this like, international world you know growing up with my grandparents we didn't have money for vacations Mm. you know my grandparents didn't have a passport you know I you know first got my passport when I was like 22 or 23 wow Uh, so it's like I had I see I saw this other world on tv but I just never had a chance to experience it because I you know couldn't afford it and so I thought the thought of someone else paying me to explore the world just seemed like a dream. Right. Um, so I so I accepted the job. Also, you know, people thought it was a downgrade, and that's interesting because it, it might have been a downgrade in branding, but it was an upgrade in terms of like what I was making. Mm. Like I got a fifty percent increase. Wow. In my salary. Yeah. And so I always thought one of two things: either one. You know, MTV was underpaying me. <laughs> right. Or two, I really did good. I think it was a combination of the two. You know, when you get promoted from within, sometimes you're not really getting your market rate. Yeah. Yeah. Out there. So I think they gave me a bump and I think I was being underpaid. So uh, what I did for Nokia for a couple of years was I headed up their new channels marketing internationally. So I was traveling to Singapore, to Europe, to South America. And I was representing um, their device, which is like called the Nokia N-Series, which is very similar to the iPhone at the time, mm-hmm. and doing campaigns. So I ran like their grassroots marketing in the U.S. and did their um, worked on their campaigns internationally. Mm-hmm. And really, really loved the work. Um, traveling all over, I got to see places like I never imagined. You know, Nokia is a Finnish company. 
And so like going to Finland and going to Sweden, those are places like I didn't even think consider uh, visiting. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, you know, going to places I love, you know, so being able to go to Asia and really explore in China and and just realize over the course of my travels that a lot of us are more alike than we are different. Because people would always ask me, you know, how is it for you being, you know, black, African-American, single, a woman traveling by yourself or business? You know, how do people treat you? And I was. I just have to say, I've just received love like all over this world okay. and and see that as a blessing. It, it was really a good experience for me. So the traveling um, was really extensive. It was extensive. I was doing like the highest, you know, executive platinum on American. I was probably gone 50% of the time, um, which really led, led to why I had to leave um, Nokia. I was on a trip. I had flown to... Los Angeles for a meeting. I've flown in, let's say, on a Thursday night, and the meeting was the next day on Friday morning. And that Friday, I was going to fly at noon to go back to New York to stop for a day, and then the next day I was flying to to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, in less than, like, 36 hours, I was going to be from L.A. to New York to Europe. And so I was in L.A. going to the meeting and I wasn't even really paying attention to what I was doing when I was driving. Mm-hmm. Um, my mind was thinking about, like, I got to make sure this meeting doesn't go long because I got to catch my flight. Cause I got to get back to New York, you know, get my, you know, get my dry cleaning so I can get up the plane tomorrow and go to Europe. And I missed my turn. I was about to miss my turn and on when I was driving. And I turned quickly. Um, but I didn't realize what I did was I turned into, like, oncoming traffic. What? And, and got into a very serious car accident. What? Oh my God! Yeah, which which I have to say, you know, the accident was my fault. Like I wasn't present. I was, you know, I was already thinking about, you know, what I was gonna do the next day, and in that moment, like everything stopped because, like, I was in excruciating pain. Um, end up being in physical therapy for about six months, being out of work for about six months. Wow! And, oh my God! Yeah. Man. Well, laid up on my couch you know, and had some time to reflect and try to figure out what I wanted to do with mm-hmm. my life. Cause I just realized in that moment, like I was lucky to be alive. Like, although I was in a lot oh of pain, yeah. And so even with me traveling around the world, one thing I had realized is that because I was traveling so much, I had received my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hadn't, I wasn't in a relationship. Mm. And so, I just thought about it. I remember laying on my couch in Harlem in my apartment saying, okay, I got to make some changes in my life. You know, I'm, I'm lucky to be alive. It's, it's time for me to do some things for myself that aren't like motivated about the next position or, or that are not, you know, motivated about uh, by trying to make more money. You know, let me think about what would bring me joy. And it popped in my head. One of my dreams was always to, to move to Paris. Wow. And, and I decided, you know, in that couch, that I was going to make that happen. Um, and I didn't know how, you know, I didn't know if I would get a job in Paris. I don't know if I'd look for one, but I was like, I'm going to move to Paris. And so what I did is I, I started saving money and I called it my freedom fund. Uh-huh. And like every that little side hustle I did. Yeah. And every month, yeah, every like extra, I just started putting money in there. And I was like, I did a budget and I said, okay, for me to move to Paris, if I stay there for a year, I came up with like how much money I thought I would need for the year. Mm-hmm. And I basically say, you know, I began saving up that amount and it, it took me a year. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember at the end of the year, I went into Nokia to let them know that I was leaving. It was like a December. And I told them I was leaving. And I remember the head of the group was like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to move to Paris. And he was like, and do what? I said, well, I think I'm going to go there to learn French and enroll in a small <laughs> school. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He was like, we pay you enough to do that? Wow. <laughs> And I replied to him, I said, you know what, it's really shocking, though, but, you know, this may surprise you, but some things aren't about money. Right. Well, I noticed, and, I noticed that, like, all your move wasn't money-driven. It was more life experience-driven. You know, <laughs> you moved to L.A., it, you were trying to figure out something that's more fulfilling. Uh, you moved to New York, that was more, you know, fulfilling. And you moved to Nokia, you wanted to travel the world. It wasn't money. You never really mean money to focus am i is am i right for saying that you are it's i'm not sure that i feel really blessed because you know money is definitely it's while it's not the focus it's definitely in the back of my mind i mean you ask anybody who's been raised poor right you don't want to be poor again Mm -hmm. but i guess that i've always been of the belief like if i'm like standing in integrity if i'm working hard that that money will be there opportunities Mm -hmm. will be there and that's kind of like guided my life. Mm-hmm. And so for me going to Paris, I was like, when, when else am I going to be able to do this? You know, and, you know, I was single, you know, I didn't have, you know, any like kind of obligations. Mm-hmm. I was like, the time is right. And, and for me, it was about a, a year. And Nokia was cool because they're like, if you want to come back, you can. And for me, I just felt like if I wanted to find another job, I felt very comfortable like that I'd be able to do that. Right. Okay, so besides saving a lot of money, what else did you do to prepare for Paris? Part of it was, like, I started taking French lessons. So I found a tutor on Craigslist, um, a young guy, paying him $20 an hour, and he would come meet me um, in Midtown. We'd meet at a cafe mm-hmm. and start learning French, literally from, like, word one. He, like, taught me how to read. Wow. <laughs> mind when I finally like read my first passage after you know kind of weeks and weeks of like tutoring but um I was like I need to get a basis of French if I'm gonna move there and then the second thing I did was I like emailed everybody I knew and said look I'm gonna be moving to Paris if you know anybody who lives there let me know and that was like huge because I met what became and still is a very dear friend my attorney in New York his cousin who was from St. Louis had moved to Paris like literally 40 years ago Mm -hmm. um, and was an actor there and he introduced me to Thomas and so we became friends and then the other thing I did before I moved is that I went and did a two-week immersion experience in French in the south of France Mm -hmm. just to see what it would be like to be by myself you know 100% in French um, and that was an awesome experience, too, because I met what would become another really dear friend who lives in France now. She worked at the language program where I took classes at when I was in the south of France. Mm-hmm. And the first day we had to stand up and say while we were there and we could say this in English. And I was like, I'm here because to learn French because I'm moving to Paris. And mm-hmm. I remember Gael pulled me to the side. She goes, her French accent, she's like, I'm so happy to meet you. She's like, I'm moving to Paris in six months um, with my boyfriend. And when you come, you must visit us. And when I, I called her when I was finally moving, you know, that February, um, I moved in February 2008. Um, she was like, you stay with me. And literally, 
she was the first person I stayed with while I got, got on my feet. Um, wow. I was wondering how did you find an apartment and stuff? Yeah, she, you know, my French was okay by then, not not great, but, like, you know, she was really, like, a guardian angel. So I was able to stay at her place. She had a two-bedroom apartment, um, like, right outside of the city, and, you know, looked at Craigslist. Craigslist is international. It's crazy. Wow. I found my apartment on Craigslist. Okay. Um, and there was an American woman who was the broker, and I found it a really cute apartment in the middle of Paris in the 6th. Nice. That I loved. And Hello? Yeah, no, I'm still here. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> I thought I lost you for a second. So um, now you have your apartment. How was Paris, you know, living? How was France, living in France? Was it everything that you envisioned? <laughs> it was, first of all, it was amazing because it was like walking through a history book. It's like everything that you see. So I lived at the 6th. And, like, Notre Dame was, like, I could walk there in three minutes. Wow. So, like, all of the tourist attractions you'd see, like, I was, like, in the middle of all of it. Um, Paris is an incredibly beautiful, beautiful city. Mm. But I, I often describe it like the boyfriend, who um, the bad boyfriend who you'd break up with but get back together with over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like, some certain days were hard, right? So what was hard about it? In, well, I think being in a city where you're an immigrant, where mm. the you know French was not my first language, and even as I got better, it's still you know it's a way and a culture, and so that's why I have the greatest empathy for people who are in our country, who are are immigrants, uh-huh. because it is really hard. I mean, just every the every way of doing business was very different in Paris. Like what it means to open up a bank account, what materials you need for you know to sign a lease. You know, it's, you know, French was not my first language. So to like sign documents and you don't even know exactly what it right. says, it's the, it's the most disconcerting feeling, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, getting off a metro and looking around and saying, I don't know where I'm at and I don't know how to ask anybody. Wow. <laughs> like, it's just all of those things. It was just really, really humbling. Um, I will say as beautiful as Paris is, you know, there is discrimination. There is segregation. I mean. It was great. I went to look at one apartment and, you know, I left. It, it seemed okay. And, but I was like, I want to keep looking. And I remember the woman told me, she goes, she goes, I just want to let you know that, you know, if you go look at certain apartments, sometimes you won't, people won't give them to you because you're black. Wow. I was like, wow. Not, you know, like, that was like unsolicited information. Like, I didn't even ask her for that, but that, you know, what she decided to share. Basically, she was telling me, you better take this one. Wow. Um, I didn't. I didn't end up taking that, but you do see a difference about how people treat you. So I don't think I didn't, I didn't ever feel like I was discriminated against. Um, and I think that was partly because I'm black, but I'm American and they see Americans as having right. money and influence. But I did see how some African immigrants were treated and, mm-hmm. you know, I found that to be problematic. Right. I peeped that when I visited Paris, I noticed like all the African blacks, they live outside of Paris and like I would like go to like restaurants there was hardly anybody who's black and I feel like if I was to go to clubs like the Africans were like the security guards you know what I'm saying and they were like giving me dap because like oh yeah you in the club you know you represent us so I sense a little racism when I did visit for a short period of time in Paris so I totally see what you're saying 
and I think that, you know, you see that, that's why I said it's like that love affair, the love-hate relationship, like in all of its beauty, it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. But I think that's with anything and with life. So, you know, I take all of that and I still love Paris. It's still one of my favorite places um, Mm -hmm. in the world. And I go visit, but, you know, I go there with eyes wide open. Right, right, right. You don't have that romantic view that more than a lot of people have, you know. You have a realistic view, but you still love that's it. it. That's it. That and still, and still love it, and would love to to move there. Um, but I end up having to. I came back, and the reason why I came back is that, um, like halfway into the year that I was there, my grandfather, my grandmother called me and told me she was diagnosed with cancer, stage wow. four cancer, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my, like I was just floored. Like she was like the the only mother that I knew, and. And so I was like, I need to go back to be with her. And so I ended up staying in Paris probably six more months, but ended up eventually decided to come back. Whereas if she hadn't got sick, I was seriously considering staying there because I really did enjoy the culture, the language, the lifestyle. They're very, very laid back. And it's like they work to live, not live to work. Did you work in Paris or are you just... I free I did a lot of freelance projects. So like I, you know, would help people with their business plans, their marketing plans and and then mainly went to school. Mm. Okay. How long were you in Paris overall? Yeah, so it was like a year and a half. Okay. And you moved back because of your, your grandmother. Yeah, she was sick. And so when she moved back, I, you know, I had some time on my hands. Um so I was going back and forth between Illinois and New York. And I was trying to think about, you know, what I wanted to do next. I was like, do I search for another job? You know, what's next for me? And I just kept going back to this idea around having this, like, transformative experience around, like, being able to travel mm-hmm. and learn languages. And from that, I started thinking about this idea of, like, all kids need to learn languages. You know, why isn't that the case? Like, why was it, you know, I didn't travel until I was, like, you know, 23 or 24. Mm-hmm. And so I came up with this idea of what I eventually call Global Language Project, mm-hmm. which was I envisioned as a nonprofit that would work with um, schools to help teach children languages. And so I wrote the business plan for it um, and start thinking about, like, how we could introduce kids to languages earlier. Mm-hmm. Originally, I envisioned it as a study abroad program for teenagers, black mm-hmm. and brown teenagers. Um, from urban areas. But when I started doing the research, I found out there's lots of those programs that exist. But sometimes by the time a a teenager is 16 or 17, they've already decided, you know, what's possible for them in terms of like their education attainment. You know, a lot of times we lose kids by high school through dropout and other issues. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what if we were to start earlier? So um, I moved it back and created the program for kindergarten through fifth grade. And what I did was I began reaching out to just old people that I knew from, like, my professional life, reached out to new people that I knew in New York, like City College and Columbia's Teacher College. And I was like, look, I got this crazy idea. I want to start this, like, language program for kids. And it surprised me. People were excited about the idea. And I found out why is because typically in New York and a lot of schools in the United States, you don't start languages until you're learning a language until you're in high school. Yeah. And many people say that that's really too late. 
Um, and not too, it's never too late because I didn't learn French as an adult, but it could be easier if you started earlier. Yeah. And so, yep. And so what I did from there is just, you know, begin building out kind of a network and, and launched what would be Global Language Project, the organization that I ran for, for eight years. How long did that take, how long did that build out take you? I mean. (laughs) Yeah, so I came back in uh, in February of 2009 from Paris. We launched our first program in September. Mm. And we were working with 30 kids. 15 of them were learn, uh, learning Spanish, and 15 of them were studying Mandarin at a K through five school in Washington Heights. Wow. So, how was it the experience in running a nonprofit? I mean, how many hats did you have to wear in order to to build a nonprofit? Well, it's crazy because you know I came from the private sector, right? So. You know, nonprofit, I didn't really understand, like, and I tell people now, like, people are like, oh, do you want to start a for-profit or a nonprofit? You know, I always tell people, regardless of the designation, you're starting a business, which Mm -hmm. means it's going to take a lot of work. So when I started Global Language Project, I thought, oh, I'll do something that's easy. Like, I didn't realize that I would work 10 times harder than I've ever worked in the Mm -hmm. private sector because... Because you have such limited, when you're first, you're a startup, right? Two, you have limited assets and resources. Like, you are wearing multiple hats. So I was, you know, in addition to hiring the teachers, you know, working to write the curriculum, you know, I would be on site making sure that the kids and the parents, you know, met after school, giving the kids their snacks, you know, like literally doing everything. And then on the flip side of that, you know, I was out trying to figure out how to raise money to support this program. So right. I started it with um, $15,000 of my own money. Mm-hmm. Um, but that only gets you so far for the pilot when we wanted to expand the program to additional grades. You start wanted, wanting to think about activities to really bring the language to life for the kids, like taking them to museums or taking them down to Chinatown. Like all that stuff costs money, mm-hmm. you know, hiring teachers and, and paying them. So I spent a lot of time fundraising really you talk about a, a nonprofit. like i had started global language project because i love kids learning languages and i love watching people learn language um but in the end i probably spent about 80 percent of my time probably outside the school doing fundraising right how was your fundraising experience and how did you was your network strong enough to fundraise from or did you have to build new networks yeah, I had to build a new network. When I found the Global Language Project, when you found a nonprofit, you have to have a board. And so at the, on my original board were two people who I went to undergrad with and one person who I more recently met. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people know about nonprofit boards, but typically board members have to donate as part of being on a board. Mm-hmm. And I remember at that time, our donation was $250. <laughs> wow. To three people. And... And the thing about it was, um, as I started to grow the organization, you know, we started to need more money. And so that meant that I would have to go out and I would have to meet for, uh, with foundations and write for grants. Also meet with, like, high net worth individuals and ask them, you know, what they were doing with their philanthropy, what they invest in Global Language Project. And also would meet with, like, corporations, the corporate social responsibility departments to see if they would invest in global language projects. So it was slow. Um, our like first year, we were probably maybe raised, you know, five or $10,000. First year? Um, oh, our, damn. Yeah. That's it? But then we, that's it. 
but then we got super lucky well in that next calendar year so we probably raised that amount of money between let's say september and uh january january we got really lucky because uh pepsi was doing this pepsi refresh competition Mm -hmm. where if you could get people to go online and vote for you you could win a grant yeah, you helped with that. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, just a little bit. Well, we were doing our online campaigns, Kelsey, and I don't know if you remember, but when you got one of the emails, you were like, you need to send more of these emails. You need to be more aggressive. And really, you inspired me to really, really wow. put my full effort behind the campaign. And we ended up winning $50,000. Wow. And that became a game changer for the organization. Okay. Because... And the reason why is because it became a signal. It's like I could go out and say Pepsi invested $50,000. Oh, wow. Nice. And then from there, and then it also built up a lot of awareness. Like all of those emails I was sending out, my board was sending out, friends were sending out. It built up awareness for the work that we were doing. So Mm -hmm. I started getting more people calling and saying, you know, what do you need? How can I help? Let me introduce you to someone. And so I actually think that started off the network, right, that Uh I could begin building on that. Okay. All right. So now you have $50,000, then, you know, awareness. So did it become like a well-oiled machine after a while, or was it still a struggle to it, you know, run your I mean, nonprofit? I mean, it took time. I mean, long story, like, short, like I, I shared, I started the board with three people. Like, that board evolved probably three or four times um, to where when I left Global Language Project in 2016, you know, we had a board where the give get was like ten thousand dollars each a person. Um, we had, you know, high net worth individuals. We had corporate sponsors. You wow. know, we had over a million dollar budget. So a million you know, dollar so that budget. Was, that yeah, that was like eight years, right? That was eight. So years you went of work. from fifteen thousand dollars startup of your own money to a million dollar budget. Yeah, and Dang. that doesn't count the money that we raised. I also raised money for a lot of the schools that we worked with beyond the language program. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, you know, received money and fundraising to provide, like, iPads to all the schools that we were working with and soft, um, software. Like, when I'd go into a school, I'd be like, okay, yes, we're doing language, but what else do you need? Mm-hmm. Like, I just really want to be a partner in the work. Wow. So, o- overall, how was that experience, and why did you end up, leaving overall it was an amazing experience i mean to take an idea that you have and see it come to reality was like incredible i think one of the challenges around it was what i just mentioned about when you go into a school i was doing languages but then i would see that there were other things that were needed mm-hmm. and i'm a i'm a um, product of public school so mm-hmm. i went to my neighborhood public school you know kindergarten through high school and I just saw some of the public schools that we were working with. Like I had real concerns about if they were, if those kids were going to be able to succeed with mm-hmm. the education that were being given. And so I decided I want to go back to pursue my doctorate because I had some very specific ideas around education mm-hmm. that I wanted to, to put forward. And, and second, I wanted to go back to get my doctorate because I also wanted to understand better how capital moves. Mm. Um, so I, I shared with you the money I raised and how I went about it. Um, during that time of, of raising money, sometimes I would apply for funding. Sometimes I would get it. Sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I would understand why. Most times I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it, I wanted to understand, like, how, who's getting the money? 
Because when we understand who's getting the money as it relates to education, we understand you can begin to trace back with some of the outcomes that you, that you see and some mm-hmm. of the programs and, and their beliefs about education. And the people who are holding the purse strings have a lot of power in terms of what, of what our kids are learning in school. Mm-hmm. Okay. For good or for bad. For right. good or for bad. So, um, so I decided, so I left, decided to leave the Global Language Project. Um, I was accepted into a program at Harvard University, a doctoral program um, in education leadership, where I could focus my research on systems change and focus on how to use capital in service of change in communities. Mm-hmm. What happened to um, Global Language Project after you left? Yeah, so Global Language Project, we promoted a woman who had worked for me for five years into the executive director role, mm-hmm. and she, she like, stayed in that role for three years, um, but she had challenges, you know, fundraising. Mm. So last year, they decided to sunset the organization. Oh, wow. Wow. How do you feel about that? Oh, it was hard. It's like your child, when she called to tell me, about some of the issues that they were having in terms of like fundraising. It was like, ugh, and, and some of the cuts that they were going to have to make. And I remember telling her, like, it's heartbreaking. And I tried to come up with different solutions for her, but I was like, if you have to cut the programs so much that it doesn't look or follow the original vision we had, I'd rather you sunset the organization. Um, and then what we did was we shared the assets, the curriculum we built with other programs that are doing language programs mm-hmm. so that the curriculum could live on and the spirit could live on. Right, right. Were you ever tempted to go back? I thought about it because I was graduating and I was like, gosh, you know, should I go back? Should I, you know, I step in. I'm sure I could raise money again. Um, but my heart really wasn't into it. You know, mm. I... You know, when I talk about why I went back to get my doctorate, you know, in reflecting back, I was all, I was too ready for change. Like when you start an organization, at least when I did, you don't think about what you're going to do when it ends. Like you're excited about it. Like my plan was launching it. I never thought I'm going to work this job for, or, you know, work at this organization for five years and then, you know, leave. Like you, I didn't have an end game in sight. Like if right. you had told me back then that I would have been running it for eight years, I'd be like, really? Like, right. I don't think I've ever planned to even stay that long, and, and time goes by fast. So I always tell entrepreneurs when I work with them now, companies I invest in, is like really understand what your end game looks like and plan mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, now you're in this doctorate program, um, and you say you graduated. Uh, where did you go, by the way? Yep, so I went to Harvard University. Oh, nice. Yes. How was that experience? I was like, was, well, I said the only way I would leave New York would be for Harvard, University for Harvard. And so it was part of the reason I wanted to go to Harvard, just to be very transparent with you, is that I wanted to build even more of a network. Mm. And so when I got there, it was exactly what I thought it would be, right? So mm-hmm. it's like every professor, researcher is just at the top of their game, and so it just expanded my mind so much being back in an institution of higher learning, mm-hmm. especially because I had real life and real work experience. Right. Um, I was able to reflect on choices I made, decisions I made, you know, think about my career path and really think about how I could have the most impact in the world. You case studied um, your life? 
<laughs> yeah, I did. I case studied my life through other people's lives, and it's um, it's true. I'm at the business school taking all of these different case studies. Right. But you do have a chance to reflect and think about, okay, what impact do you want to have next? And the specific program that I was in was about really uh, cultivating systems level level leaders. So mm-hmm. a lot of it was around self reflection and thinking about like where you can have most impact in the world. Mm-hmm. And and for me, there was something around like how capital moves was really important for me because even when I was raising money, I would see other, you know, nonprofit executive directors who weren't raising as much money, um, who had good products, who had mm-hmm. great ideas, but they didn't have a network. You know, for me, at least I had my corporate connections, um, which could help me. Right. And some of those people didn't have that. And so I, I felt like they were at a real disadvantage not because of their idea, but because of their social network uh-huh. and, and because and their access to wealth. Okay. So that's why you decided to kind of after Harvard decided to become an investor? That, that's exactly it. Because I began looking at the statistics about really the number of businesses led by black and brown people, not say black, Latino, and by women that don't receive investments, right? Mm. So again, that have viable ideas but they don't have a friends and family round. You know, typically that's how most people start their businesses. And we hear this over and over. We hear about, about Trump. You, you know, you hear it about, you know, a lot of the fa- you know, famous people, their parents may gave them a loan you right. know, or an aunt or an uncle. And so if you don't have, you know, generational wealth where you can go to a family member who can say, I'll give you, you know, $30,000, I'll give you $10,000. Like, where do you find that money? Right. Um, and typically that is what prevents a lot of entrepreneurs of color from even starting. Mm. And the second part about that is that stops them from, you know, persisting when times get hard, because when you don't have a social safety net and right. your, your rent is due, right. even though you love the company you started at some point, you got to be like realism sets in. Right. Like, reality right. sets in. And listen, and, I can relate. Again, I can relate to all that. Yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't go back to the value of the idea, and that's what breaks my heart about it, because I feel like we are missing out on the genius of a lot of innovators mm-hmm. who could really change the game and change the world, because we have this capital access gap, and we have structural racism, right? Just plainly, you know, when people are not giving money to black and brown founders, a lot of it is about race, mm-hmm. and we need more people, I feel, in my seat who can actually help close that gap. Right. So how are you doing that um, in terms of addressing the, the stigma against, you know, minority investors, as well as, you know, finding quality and, you know, people to invest in? Yeah, so two things. So right now I work with a firm, New Profit. We're based in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I particularly chose them for a reason because I knew coming out of my program I wanted to invest. And someone gave me some great advice. They were like, Find a firm that's aligned with your values. Mm. And when I look at New Profit, you know, the CEO, who is a white woman, Vanessa Kirsch, you know, she looked at our portfolio and she noticed that there were trends. But a lot of people that we were giving money to, our signature deals are about a million dollars, were white men with Ivy League degrees. Mm. And she went to her board and was like, we need to shift this. And as an organization, they made a commitment that over the next five years, we're going to shift the amount of money that we invest to 40 to 50 percent will be to entrepreneurs of color. Wow. And she's made that public. 
so when I thought about a firm that I wanted to work in, I was like, that's where I want to be. And this is right? a white woman I, who saw that and compelled to make that shift. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, she's she's a special person. You know, she has been working in the public space. She founded what is called Venture Philanthropy 20 years ago. Um, if you read Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, mm-hmm. um, when Michelle talked about her work in the public sector, um, she was working for an organization that this woman, Vanessa Kirsch, created, Public Allies. Mm. So she's always been committed mm-hmm. um, to equity, but everybody goes on their own journey. And sometimes, you know, you got to look at the data, right? And someone, and data doesn't lie. And that's where we are right now. So right. for for New Profit, I'm leading their future of work investments and strategies. So I'm investing in HR, workforce tech, and then really investing in thinking about entry-level workers and, local, and workers who may have, like, low wealth, mm-hmm. thinking about, like, what needs to be true or what solutions can help them and enable them get on, to get on career paths. And so those are where I make my investments. And how I'm doing that, making sure that I'm investing in more people of color, is one is just by naming it. Mm-hmm. You know, everywhere I go when I'm speaking, I'm talking about this. You know, I don't want to be the only brown person on a panel. And when I, when I am, I'm naming it. Right. Um, I'm talking about these disparities. I'm also, you know, I have a pipeline of deals of people that we're looking to invest in. So I'm launching my first investments in November. Okay. I'm um, making sure that I'm holding myself true, right? Right. To who I'm investing in. And then the other thing that I do a lot of is connect people, even if they may not fall in my investment area. Mm-hmm. For example, I had someone that was interested, uh, an entrepreneur I met, he's brilliant. He's got already $1.3 million in sales, right? And he works in the K-12 space. Although I don't invest in that space, like I just took the time to send emails to three other VCs, venture capitalists who do, and said, will you take a meeting with him? He's Mm -hmm. brilliant, but this is the issue. So I try to do a lot of that, of of connecting people um, and doing soft intros because, again, that's what other people are doing. You know, friends and family money. And social networks, and so the right. more that we can bridge that for entrepreneurs of color, we're going to see an uplift. Right now, question: This is a question, like, because I have a, tr- you know, trouble with this. How do you get like a mom and pop entrepreneur who wears a million one hats, who has like some really great ideas, but may not have the knowledge and resources, you know, in position to be, you know, to for investors to to even think about investing in their ideas and so forth. How do mom and pop guy people get to that point? Yeah, so I go back to when I found the Global Language Project. Like I shared with you all, shared with you that I wrote a business plan, but I went down to the Small Business Administration. They have free counselors. So, and that literally for free, you know, even if you're in New York and you go to the library to visit one of them, they will sit down with you and help you write a plan and flesh out your idea. Mm-hmm. And so I think one thing I tell entrepreneurs, depending on what stage they are, if they're really early stage like that, I said, you know, be very clear on your idea and the problem that you're solving. Mm. Okay. And so, and, and I'll say a bit more about that because I think this is really important. Um, you may have an idea to sell T-shirts, and that is great, right? But why is somebody going to buy the T-shirts? Like, and typically when I say what problem are you solving – you need to be clear on, like, what's going to motivate somebody to pay $5 for your product versus spend $5 on something else. Mm-hmm. And if you have a product idea, 
or service idea, you need to like be very clear on why people are going to buy it. Not just because you're in love with it. Right. Right. I, I, I tell people, don't fall in love with your idea. Fall in love with the problem that you're solving. Because right. out of that, you'll have a product and you'll have a market. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself um, who invested their own funds. Is there, are there any alternative to doing so or is it just part of the journey part of the process i think it's hard not to invest your own funds mm -hmm. and i'll tell you why even and i'm not saying it has to be a certain amount if you don't invest in you then how do you expect someone else to it's mm -hmm. just a mindset mm -hmm. you know people would tell me that even when i was raising money for GLP, like if if you're not giving if your board isn't giving like how can you ask someone else to give right 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 so, but I don't, but I'm not saying you have to have, you know, I don't think you have to have thousands of dollars. I think you have to like really pound the payment and think about what are the resources in your community. So there's a couple of things. There's tons of incubators out there now, now more than ever, mm -hmm. where you can apply with just an idea and they'll take you through an eight or 16 week boot camp process right. to help you build your idea. And typically funding comes as, as part of that. Right. And those are great because they also offer signals to other investors, later stage investors, that you've been vetted. Right. Now, question, <laughs> these incubators, a lot of people are so protective about their idea. Does these in incub incubators take any um, equity in your idea? Um, a lot of people are like, okay, if I share this idea, and you may take it because you have more resources, you have more connects and all that. Yeah, so typically... With the incubators, some of them do take a percentage of it so that they'll tell you up front that if they invest, if you do the incubation and they invest in you, um, that there will be an investment that they would want a percentage of it. So you can decide if that's the incubator for you or not. Mm -hmm. um, but what I also tell entrepreneurs is like, I'd rather, you know, let's say an incubator takes 5%. I would rather them take 5% and have 95% of something than 100% of nothing, mm -hmm. right? So, like, we really have to, we don't want people to steal our idea. I get that. But you got to put your idea out there so you can get people to come along with you. Right. Right. This is, like, you know, amazing, uh, amazing information that you're sharing and gems. Um, I was, is there anything that you want to, like, share in terms of advice for anyone who want to open a nonprofit who uh who are passionate about their ideas and they just don't know how to start you know anything i know you shared a lot already but any anything additional so this just worked for me and i think and i've done it probably when i look back and reflect at my my entire career i always wrote down my goals mm. but I, I i've always written down my goals and have them in a place where i can see them where would you where did you put, where did you put that where where were what, they what, so just recently i had a post-it in my kitchen <laughs> with them because i had a smaller apartment you know right now they're on my phone and on my iphone in the notes section mm -hmm. um and i usually try to before i had a long list now i've got like a list of like four or five um that i'm working on i haven't achieved them all yet but you know this a couple of them getting very close to, which I'm excited about, mm -hmm. but that's always given me focus. You mm -hmm. know, even when I think about, you know, my intention of wanting to move from Los Angeles to um, New York, or what I said earlier, when I said, you know, 
my counselor and my undergrad asked me what my dream job looked like. Like I always had a vision of like what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think that is just so powerful. So that's what I would give people like write it down and hold tight to your vision, like, and be relentless about it. Mm. Cause you don't know how it's going to come. You know, I don't, you know, when I said I wanted to live and work internationally, I didn't know it was going to show up at Nokia. Like sometimes it shows up in a different package mm. than you expected, mm-hmm. but it showed up. Right. So you know, just, just hold tight to that and be faithful and work, you know, one step at a time. Right. You know, it happened. So where do you see Angela Jackson in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I, I'm really excited about the next five years. Really, I've been thinking about. So I see myself running my own fund. Okay, um, investment right now, fund. Now, yeah, right now I work for New Profit. You know, next five to ten, I will definitely have my own fund where I'm investing directly. I, you know, I see having you know people under me who are also investing. Really, you know, super focused on you know entrepreneurs of color and thinking about entrepreneurs outside of the east and west coast you know thinking about entrepreneurs from where i grew up in you know mm-hmm. illinois in the middle of the country you know thinking about the south um i'm also you know seeing myself living back in california by a beach you know wow okay at this phase i'm i'm really embracing like work plus joy okay and how you, you bring all of that together right you know i never really touched on this you know, in terms of balance, because you seem like you've been in go, 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 go in terms of focusing on manifesting things and making things happen. How did that overall affect on your personal life and relationships? Yeah. So like, you know, I shared with, we shared offline. So for me, uh, coming to Boston was an interesting move because when I came here, I was single, but I met my now fiance. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, So yeah, I slowed down when I came from New York to Boston. I think that allowed me, you know, I was back in school to really kind of be in relationships. So I wasn't hustling as much. Mm. Um, so I think there's something to be said about that, right? The importance of balance. Right. Um, while you're trying to make things happen, um, slowing down is, uh, is something you need to do too, right? Sometimes you need to go fast. Sometimes you need to go slow. And uh, knowing the two, because I definitely see some benefits of me having a chance to slow down and get clear. Mm-hmm. on my next steps. Um, right. And just in general, people tell you I'm like extroverted introvert. Like I do try to take downtime, you know, I meditate every morning um, and just really get centered on like what I think is most important for me in life and just in the day and in general. Right. What time do you usually get up in the morning? Six. Okay. Every day? On weekends? Every day. Yeah. I just naturally wake up. It's it's, it's annoying actually. Right. <laughs> like, I oh, so you're I a morning, morning person. I'm definitely a morning person. Nice. How's your fiance? Is he a morning person? <laughs> he is not a morning person. So like while I'm up, he is like getting the best sleep of his life. And I like wish I look at him. I, I wish that I could just sleep like him. He's like a master sleeper. That is not my gift. Right. Well, Angela, I appreciate you sharing your journey with me. And I think it was an amazing one. It was a great conversation. I learned so much about you that I never knew. Um, and I, I'm sure my listeners going to be, you know, having a notepads, <laughs> taking down all the gems that you just shared. So thank you so much for being on Reverse Ambition. And I'm really um, excited for your next uh, phase of your life. And I'm excited to see what else you do. That's going to be, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Oh, that goes both ways. I'm just sending you so much love. I'm excited for you. 
this new venture that you have and just seeing it blow up. Yeah, man. I'm, this is something I'm really, I mean, when you say slow down, I am now living in D.C. myself. And I was forced to slow down. <laughs> but if I didn't slow down, I wouldn't have clarity in terms of this new uh, podcast idea. And I feel like, and it's just coming together so organically. So I'm really excited about it. I'm really passionate about it. And, and it's like, you know, I'm so blessed that I know so many dynamic people like you. So all I have to do is like DM them or ig them or you know just text them they're like yo i'll be more than happy to do this so it's something that i'm very excited about and i'm excited to see where it goes awesome kelsey well look i look forward to staying in touch thank you again for having me on i hope we can do this again once we have our new updates yeah girl i gotta i gotta reach out i need some investors we'll talk about that later (laughs) okay we will all right girl take care bye-bye Thank you all for tuning into Reverse Ambition Podcast. It is really a pleasure sharing these amazing journeys with you. It may take some time for you to find your purpose and realize your dreams or for your purpose and dreams to find you. When it happens, don't be afraid to pursue them. Be more afraid if you don't. Trust God, trust your journey, and most important, trust yourself and it will all work out. Until next time, I am Kelsa Cooper, The Social Broker. Thanks again for listening.